millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I've been around the world and I, I, like Lisa Stansfield, I'm headed for Rochdale right after this show as a matter of fact. But right now, I'm in The Hague after the Lord Mayor's show. It was only on Friday and all the euphoria that was around seems like an eternity ago because it's all gone hideously wrong and the danger of world war is back on the agenda this evening for reasons which if you're not up to date I will succinctly explain. We'll be talking about Rishi Sunak, about Sir Keir Starmer, about Joe Biden, about Donald Trump. We'll be talking about South Africa, but above all, we'll be talking about the atrocities, the massacres, the genocide, as we can now definitively say that is taking place in Gaza. I was outside the so-called Palace of Peace in The Hague just an hour or so ago. That's where the historic judgment was delivered on Friday. Take a look at this. I'm at the International Court of Justice in The Hague. It's after the Lord Mayor's show. All the journalists have gone, all the crowds have gone, but the verdict hangs heavy. It's not a small thing to have been found plausibly to have been committing genocide, the very word genocide. And given one month, just one month, to report back to the court that you have ceased and you have desisted from any further harm and death to the Palestinian people in Gaza. There was no call for a ceasefire because there couldn't be. The Hamas and the other Palestinian resistance groups were not a party to the case and the court can't rule that one side in a conflict stops fighting without having the other in front of it. So effectively, the court decided that Israel must cease fire because how else can it avoid further harm and death to the Palestinian people in Gaza? That's a verdict that will ring out in history. That's a shot that was heard across the world. But what happened next was quite unexpected. I thought that the Western allies of Israel would either attack the decision of the court or remain completely silent and ignore it. What I didn't expect was that they would attack and they would be silent, ignoring it in their mass media, and that they would defund the very agency which is keeping millions of Palestinian refugees alive in Gaza. They would cut them off on the biggest hopes of the war so far, and there have been quite a few of those, but I'll have more to say about that on the show. But here behind me, history was made. 
God bless you, South Africa. Long live South Africa. Long live the ANC. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. How long ago it all seems, Friday was when that historic judgment was delivered. It was not a close-run thing. It was, on one of the votes, 16 judges against one, inexplicably, the judge from the African country of Uganda. The other was 15 judges against two, the Ugandan judge and the Israeli judge being the dissenting voices. As judgments go on a court that size, that has to be seen as utterly overwhelming, devastating. And although I knew that Netanyahu had said in advance that he would not be stopped by any judgment of any court, because, of course, exceptionalism means that you are, well, exceptional, that laws are for other people. They're not for you, even though your state is a party to the Genocide Convention even though your state has a judge on the court that is making the judgment. So I already knew that he would do that. But I did believe, and in this, I stand condemned of unforgivable naivety. I did think it would give the Western allies of Israel a pause for thought. I did believe that in Western capitals, it would be a very difficult thing, not least in the face of their own domestic law and their own lawful commitment to the decisions of the ICJ. Difficult for them to go on with business as usual with Netanyahu. Difficult for them to continue sending money to a party that had just been found plausibly guilty of genocide and put on trial and told that within one month they must report back as to how they had complied with the six principles adjudicated upon and overwhelmingly voted by the bench. I did believe it would be difficult to keep sending weapons. I did believe it would be difficult to keep giving diplomatic cover. I did think that one way that they might approach an adverse decision from their point of view, was that they would attack the court. I don't know, call these 16 judges Putin's agents or something. I did think that there was a possibility that they would ignore it, which some of them comprehensively have. The prime minister has made little or no comment on this historic judgment at all. The foreign secretary, David Cameron, the man that sometimes tells you that he's a seer on legal matters and sometimes shrugs his shoulders and says, well, I'm not a lawyer. Uh, one man who is a lawyer is Sir Keir Starmer, King's Counsel, no less, formerly known as a QC, Queen's Counsel. Sir Keir Starmer, the human rights lawyer, has not uttered a single word about the historic judgment of the International Court of Justice in The Hague. Now that is truly inexplicable. I did think that the media might just ignore it. 
And that is precisely what they did. The departure of Liverpool's football manager, Jurgen Klopp. Uh, God bless him. I hope he has a long and happy retirement at the end of the season. Uh, that was items one, two and three on the BBC's website. The London Times, once the Journal of Record, reported sparingly on the decision of the ICJ on page 34 of that day's edition. It is uh, stunning that journalists and broadcasters can care so little about their professional reputation, about their integrity, about their self-respect, that they can agree to completely ignore, completely ignore, a story which is trending, burning on social media and that hundreds of millions of people are following avidly, hour by hour, hanging on every word that the judge, judges delivered here in The Hague. It is astounding to me that no one in a newsroom says, aren't we going to cover the decision of the ICJ? That no one uh, on the uh, benches of the remaining newspaper offices that we have asks the editor, how are we playing this story? But no, the vast majority of the British media completely ignored a judgment that only the previous week they had televised live Israel's response to South Africa's case whilst not televising at all South Africa's case. I suppose what I'm saying is that the reputation of Western broadcasters and journalists, already in tatters, is now in shreds. It is beyond a joke that these people can still call themselves journalists, correspondents, broadcasters, analysts. They are professional liars. Lying with words and pictures or merely lying by omission. But liars nonetheless. Thank God you cannot bribe or twist the average British journalist. But when you see what unbribed he'll do, you realize there's no reason to. There's no reason to bribe these prostitutes. They are anybody's. Anybody who employs them can get them to do or not do anything that the employer has decided to do or not do. The last journalist in England is in Belmarsh Prison. His name is Julian Assange. Imagine if Assange was still free. Imagine if he was free to give us the backstory, as he so frequently was, about what's going on in the world. But enough, I'm sorry to say, about Friday's judgment. I was thinking on Friday that I could, you know, sing Jose Sikalela Africa. I was hoping that I could talk at length about the great triumph of the people and the government of South Africa. But alas, I cannot. Because two vitally important developments, clearly pre-planned, a conspiracy was clearly hatched. 
that if the judgment went against Israel the very next day, the UNRWA hoax would be launched to take the story in an entirely different and unexpected, at least to me, unexpected direction. Israel claims, Israel claims, that's the same Israel that claimed they don't bomb hospitals, that the Al-Shifa hospital was blown up by a misfiring Hamas rocket. Yes, that Israel. The Israel that said there were 40 beheaded babies. The Israel that said there were dead children hanging on clotheslines. The Israel that said there were babies baked in the oven. Yes, that Israel. Israel claims that 12 members of the 13,000 staff of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, which feeds, clothes, provides medicines, provides schooling, provides all the services on which this refugee population, refugee population depends, that 12 members out of 13,000 staff members in the agency had participated in the events of October 7. Now, of course I cannot know whether 12 or two or one or none of the UNRWA staff members did or didn't. I certainly know I can't take Israel's word for it. And if you think you can take Israel's word for it, I've got a bridge here in London that I can sell you. But in a clearly choreographed collaboration, one after another of the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant countries, the Five Eyes and their pals, immediately on an allegation by Israel cut off their funding to UNRWA, meaning starvation for 2.3 million people. I'm talking about hundreds of millions of pounds over 24 hours was immediately withdrawn in order to make you look over there. Don't dare look at The Hague. Don't look at Israel having been found plausibly to have been engaged in genocide. You know what a genocide is? It's a holocaust. That's what a genocide is. Don't look there. Look over there at the 12. That's 0.04% of the UNRWA staff were involved somehow in October 7th. We're told, by the way, that this allegation came as a result of interrogation of Palestinian prisoners that have been taken by Israel since it invaded Gaza. That's interrogation that has been denounced as torture by Amnesty International, by Human Rights Watch, and by governments throughout the world. We're told on the basis of an allegation that we should starve to death 
2.3 million Palestinian refugees to whom we have an international legal responsibility and have done. Since 1948, in the Palestinian territories and in the Palestinian refugee camps in the countries alongside. Now, that would be like withdrawing all funding from the National Health Service because Dr. Harold Shipman murdered a substantial number of his patients. One bad apple, pull the plug on the entire National Health Service. You see how ridiculous this is? And the fact that it went into motion in this well-oiled choreography within 24 hours, it appeared in all the newspapers that had ignored the Hague decision, and all these chanceries and heads of governments, heads of states, of the, the usual suspects, the United Kingdom, the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. You get the picture. Well, that is in itself a genocidal act. When you have a legal obligation to provide food and medicine to a captive refugee population and you renege on that legal obligation because a country just found guilty of genocide alleges that 0.04% of the staff of that agency were involved on October 7th. That is in itself joining the genocide. So the Western allies of Israel didn't just ignore the decision in The Hague. They didn't just attack the decision in The Hague. They joined in the very genocide which the judges in The Hague had just opined upon and sent Israel for trial on genocide charges. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Well, yet another Labour MP has just had the whip removed on the demand of the Israel lobby in Britain. Who runs the Labour Party? 
in Britain. Well, I'll have something to say about that later when I tell you about my visit to Rochdale. But first, we've got the one and only Lara Elbono, who is a Palestinian-American international lawyer and the co-host of the Palestine pod. She was a guest just a couple of weeks ago, and she was a sensation. The viewers loved what she had to say and how she said it. Then we were looking forward to the decision of the ICJ here in The Hague last Friday. Let's hear from her what she thought about what happened on Friday and what's happened next. Lara, welcome back to the show. A very warm welcome. You were a very popular guest last time. Uh, now, uh, I think I'm right in saying that the judgment was a stinging, heavy judgment, uh, one which in ordinary times uh, would have kept us talking uh, for weeks. But now it's actually been overtaken by so many dramatic events. There's a danger, isn't there, that its importance will be lost. What do you say? Thank you, George, for having me again. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. And, I, and, and for that reason, I first want to start um, by uh, mentioning that the single most important thing that we must all be doing in this moment is continuing in the uh, global movement to push for an immediate permanent ceasefire and continuing also to keep our eyes on Gaza and Israel's genocidal assault, which is now in its 113th day. And I say this because in the 24 hours since the rendering of the ICJ order, Israel killed roughly 200 people in Gaza. It's been sieging and attacking Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunis, where the doctors have been tweeting out to the world, asking for assistance and begging the world not to let um, happen to them what happened to the doctors at Al-Shifa Hospital and so many other hospitals in Gaza. Um, Israel has also issued another genocidal evacuation order seeking to push people even further south, so from Khan Yunis to Rafah, and create a bottleneck. Um, and Rafah, as we know, is already at the point of catastrophe, suffering from severe overcrowding and the spread of disease. And many people, including children, continue to die from the cold, die from starvation, die from disease on a daily basis. And at the same time, we see Israelis now protesting at the Karam Abu Salem crossing to ensure that food and basic supplies and medicine are not reaching Gaza. So the factual developments on the ground continue to be more and more catastrophic every day. And with that said, I will comment on the court's decision. Um, uh, and I think in order to properly comment on it, we actually have to begin with what the decision is. Um, and, and so to summarize, essentially, the court rejected every single one of Israel's legal arguments on the existence of a legal dispute, um, on the existence of irreparable prejudice and urgency, which of course we know is required in order to order provisional measures, and also on the plausibility of the rights requiring protection. And the court affirmed that it had jurisdiction in this case, that it was plausible that Israel was in violation of its rights under the Genocide Convention. The court affirmed that this case will go on to a merits phase. And as to the provisional measures, the court ordered in an overwhelming majority, either 15 to 2 or 16 to 1, depending on the measure, several provisional measures, notably ordering Israel to take all measures to prevent genocide, to immediately ensure that its military does not kill or wound people in Gaza, 
or inflict destructive conditions on them. And Israel was also ordered to prevent and punish incitement and to allow all humanitarian aid into Gaza, save evidence and report back to the court within one month. Um, and at which point the court may decide to impose even further provisional measures on Israel if it finds that Israel is not in compliance with these measures. So it's really important for us to keep in mind that even though we've heard Israel and the U.S. try to spin this as a win for Israel, that's simply delusional. They lost essentially almost all, almost everything. They lost all their legal arguments and South Africa were granted the majority of the provisional measures that they requested. For six uh demands, if you like, that the court made uh, of Israel. Summarize them for us, if you will. Yeah, so essentially the court ordered uh, Israel to take all measures, all measures, not reasonable measures, all measures to prevent genocide and to, with immediate effect, ensure that its military does not commit any of the genocidal acts under the convention, which includes killing and wounding Palestinians and also inflicting destructive conditions of life on them. Um, Israel must also prevent and punish incitement um, of those uh, politicians which are um, uh, committing incitement to genocide. And Israel was also ordered to allow all humanitarian aid into Gaza, save evidence, and report back to the court within one month. Now, they have brazenly defied that despite being a state party to the convention, despite having a judge sitting on the bench, uh, despite being a member state of the United Nations, and, uh, of course, if these were normal times, if this was a normal country, one would expect punitive consequences. But what do you do with a state party to the convention that continues immediately to defy not just the terms of the convention, but an actual specific judgment handed down to them. Yeah, and of course, this is the most frustrating part, right? Um, we know that Israel vowed to ignore the ICJ's order before it was rendered. And since it was rendered, many statements were made by Israeli government officials um, confirming that they would not be complying with the order. Ben Gavir even tweeted Hague Schmeg moments after the order was rendered. So um, that certainly leaves us with the question of, okay, well, what's the utility of such an order? And I think here, you know, we need to remind people that there's simply no combination of words that the court could have used, which would have resulted in Israel stopping its genocidal onslaught simply because Israel does not care what the court has to say. It has, as I mentioned before on the show, um, ignored previous um, uh, decisions of the International Court of Justice completely. Um, and so then, uh, I, personally, I think the only utility then in this, in the order, is uh, two things. One, it will ultimately change the rhetoric in terms of cementing Israel as a genocidal regime, um, which is to the benefit of the long-term Palestinian freedom struggle. And then two, um, it puts third states on notice of the risk of genocide in Gaza, which then will trigger their own obligations under the Genocide Convention to prevent genocide and also not be complicit in it. And this can, with appropriate pressure from the grassroots, eventually get states to condition or suspend funding or the provision of arms to Israel, which is necessary in order for us to reach the point of a permanent immediate ceasefire. 
this previously was not possible. If you remember, you know, weeks ago, I don't remember how long ago exactly it was when Bernie Sanders put forward his proposal to uh, condition or review even um, the provision of arms and, and, and funding to Israel on the basis of their compliance with human rights. It got 11 senators to support it. So, I mean, this is this is such a huge taboo in the United States that we really need some some legal hook that we can attach to in order to be able to push this forward politically. My apologies for uh, difficulties with my sound. Lara, I think, was loud and clear, and wasn't she? Uh, she was summarizing the judgment that was made on Friday at the ICJ and had moved on to beginning to adumbrate the uh, consequences that have flowed. Uh, so if Lara's still with me, uh, and I'm in a makeshift studio, thanks to my good friend Faisal, so I'm not actually able to see her. But if Lara's still with me, Lara, I was just saying that I didn't expect Israel, of course, to abide by the judgment, but I thought it would inhibit Israel's allies, uh, foremost amongst them, your country and mine, uh, in carrying on business as usual. But that doesn't seem to have happened, does it? No, actually, within 24 hours of the ICJ order being rendered, we had several Western governments led by the U.S., Canada and the U.K. cut funding to UNRWA, which is a U.N. agency for Palestinian refugees and the single largest provider of aid and services on the ground in occupied Palestine. And it cannot be you know, overemphasize the extent to which this is going to have disastrous consequences and lead to the killing of Palestinians on the ground today in Gaza who are, who are already beaten down and starving and displaced and have, 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 have been undergoing hell for over 113 days now. And we have to keep in mind that this goal of Israel to destroy UNRWA is not something that, you know, popped up yesterday or the day before, um, uh, you know, as a result of the allegations that now Israel is is, is trying to, uh, you know, put forward. Um, this is something that Israel has wanted to do for a very long time. There were even statements from Israeli officials from a month ago, from two months ago, saying very clearly that Israel would not win this war without destroying UNRWA. And part of the reason that is, is because UNRWA is responsible for maintaining the refugee status of Palestinians. And therefore, it's inherently linked to their legal right to return to their homes in what is now Israel. And so for Israel, destroying UNRWA is, is a means of it having, it, it would allow it to essentially get rid of all of these Palestinian refugees, at least um, you know, administratively, at least in terms of in name, and it would allow it to further entrench um, its settler colonial agenda. And so this is something that we have to reject completely. And I just want to um, emphasize the extreme hypocrisy and double standards uh, by the U.S. And, and these other countries that have joined it in such a move. Instead of sanctioning Israel in the wake of the ICJ order, which clearly, clearly put those countries on notice that by continuing to support Israel, they too are violating the genocide convention. They did the opposite. They sanctioned the people that, who are undergoing the genocide themselves. And it's, it's truly shameful. Isn't that in itself a genocidal act prosecutable? Oh, absolutely. I believe it was Francis Boyle, uh, the professor Francis Boyle, who previously worked on the genocide case having to do with Bosnia, um, that uh, that uh, tweeted or or he put out a public statement saying that this now is actually a genocidal act under the convention. 
um, it's creating conditions of life on the ground that will deprive Palestinians of the means to continue living. And so therefore, it's also a, viola- a direct violation of the Genocide Convention. Um, and, and let's not forget that the U.S. has already been sued for complicity in genocide through the provision of arms and uh, financing and diplomatic uh, you know, protection in U.S. federal court. That was a lawsuit brought by the Center for Constitutional Rights and Palestinian plaintiffs whose families were massacred in Gaza, and they had a hearing uh, l- last week as well in that case. And so therefore, the U.S. is either at a minimum complicit, if not completely directly committing a genocidal act at this point in time. Now, at the end of the month, there were, Israel was given one month uh, to, as it were, uh, show that they had complied. Uh, what happens uh, if they just don't turn up, if they just don't submit a report? Uh, is that likely that that's what they will do? Um, it's it's very likely. In fact, if you remember in 2004, when the um, International Court of Justice Um, was reviewing the legality of the wall that Israel built and occupied West Bank. Israel turned up for the phase um, having to do with jurisdiction. But once the court affirmed that they had jurisdiction, then Israel refused to participate in the proceedings and uh, the merits phase continued without Israel present. Israel often boycotts um, international tribunals um, or, um, you know, areas uh, or venues which may seek to hold it accountable. So it's possible that it may not even show up to submit a report. I, I can't say. Or they may try to submit a report saying that they're doing everything they can, while in fact the reality on the ground shows us very clearly that that's not actually the case. And we will continue to see the same images and videos that we have been seeing for the last 3.5 months, um, essentially maintaining this alternate reality that Israel lives in, where they are just the good guys and we're all, you know, crazy and don't know what we're talking about. So um, they may show up, they may not. you know, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that the court at that point has has told South Africa they would have an opportunity to respond in any event, and that the court may seek to impose even further provisional measures if they see that Israel is acting defiantly and um, in total disregard for the court. So that's also something that we should continue to push the 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 the, the global conversation on the immediate permanent ceasefire, because even though the court didn't expressly order a suspension in Israel's military activity through this order, it doesn't exclude the possibility that they could do so in one month. Um, now, of course, this is not, um, you know, the results that, 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 that people on the ground, you know, want, want to hear because they need this today. They've needed this every single day before today. Um, but, you know, I'm here to comment on what the court is able to do, um, you know, from this point on. And, and, and so while that's wholly insufficient in terms of what is actually needed on the ground, um, that's something that we should also keep in mind. But this also underscores that really it's on the people. It's on the people worldwide who have been mobilizing to continue mobilizing and to continue to put pressure. This court was never going to um, save us with its order. Um, the order is only a tool that we can now use in our political mobilizing efforts to continue to push for the change that is needed. Um, but in and of itself, it's not capable of producing that change if we don't use it um, in the strategic ways um, that we need to be using it. Well, you say the people who have been mobilizing, according to Nancy Pelosi on American television today, uh, these people may actually be in the pay of Vladimir Putin. Uh, that takes the unhinged Russiagate uh, affair into uh, another universe, doesn't it? 
You know, George, I watched that clip right before I came on and I was actually at a loss for words. I mean, the level of delusion that is in the, you know, the halls of Washington, the level of just um, complete misunderstanding, either it's negligence or it's, it's, it's willful, um, you know, arrogance and, and refusal to see what is right before them. I don't know what it is exactly, but it is completely divorced from the reality on the ground in Gaza. It's completely divorced from the motivations of billions of people who have been mobilized trying to stop this genocide of Palestinians in Gaza. Because every single day for three and a half months, we have watched on our phones children be massacred, families be pulled from the rubble. And this has understandably awakened something human in us, which tells us that this is not a world that we want to live in, a world which allows the slaughter of now 13,000 Palestinian babies and children. To dismiss, to dismiss that human reaction as, oh, these must just be some paid Russian operatives with absolutely no factual uh, basis whatsoever, just an allegation like that made by Nancy Pelosi on primetime television. It's so irresponsible. In fact, it's criminal. There, this simply, we cannot continue to allow these elected officials to get away with this type of framing. It is act, it's actually criminal. Well, she said she's uh, sending the FBI after those people who've been mobilizing. It is indeed uh, criminal. But going back now to the case, if I may, Israel is arguably already, but if they didn't show up in a month or didn't report any uh, remedying of the situation in a month, uh, they're arguably in contempt of court uh, in layman's terms. That's what we call it here anyway. Uh, the, the next step would presumably be uh, the issuing of arrest warrants for uh, Israeli officials, wouldn't it? Well, I mean, that's a step that should have actually taken place uh, long ago. Uh, if, if you're speaking about the International Criminal Court, the International Criminal Court did not need a finding by the International Court of Justice in order to proceed to issue arrest warrants for Israeli officials. That's something the prosecutor could have done long ago. And in fact, he was urged to do long ago by Palestinian NGOs, by politicians worldwide, by states who referred the matter um, um, of the Gaza genocide to him. A number of states did so, calling on him to issue arrest warrants for Israeli officials many months ago. And he still has not done an absolutely anything to respond to those um, uh, growing requests for him to act. And so, um, therefore, you know, the, there's, a, there's a tremendous amount of critique right now, um, and, and it continues to evolve um, about the behavior of Kareem Khan, uh, wondering if he is compromised um, because his behavior simply is not consistent with the behavior of a prosecutor that would be acting in a reasonable manner to uphold his mandate to prevent um, and sanction mass atrocities like genocide because he's simply done nothing to 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 actually respond to this ongoing genocide. Um, so whether yeah, well, or not I'm now, here, uh, yeah, I'm here in The Hague looking for Mr. Khan. But he is avoiding me. Uh, as a matter of fact, I know him. Uh, but that hasn't stopped him avoiding me. And uh, if I can, I'll find him and put a microphone uh, under his nose. Uh, but while we've got you here and you are an international lawyer, can I ask you just one adjacent question? I said in my monologue, I hope it was able to be heard, 
that Joe Biden deliberately said uh, these American soldiers who were killed and wounded today, uh, he deliberately lied that they were killed and wounded in Jordan rather than where they actually were killed and wounded in Syria, where, I'm arguing, uh, the United States' presence is an illegal one, whereas their presence in Jordan, for some reasons best uh, explained by the Jordanians, is a legal presence. The difference being that in law, the United States could legitimately and lawfully respond to an attack on its forces in Jordan, but would be acting illegally in uh, uh, responding uh, to an attack on their illegal presence in Syria. Have I got that right? You know, George, I'm not sure that that distinction even matters, because when has it ever stopped the U.S. Um, to know that they're acting illegally? I mean, the invasion and occupation of Iraq was illegal for all intents and purposes, and the U.S. has never actually um, changed its behavior in accordance with what is legal or lawful. It has participated in many illegal aggressions and occupations. So I, I don't know that that's necessarily what's behind this characterization. Maybe he just uh, can't read the maps. That's always a possibility. Uh, sorry, yes. I said lastly, Lara, but, but really, I promise lastly. The decision of the court here in The Hague on Friday seems to me to make the action of the Yemenis illegal action on the basis that it is an obligation on anyone to stop what appears to be a genocide by any means uh, in their power. That would render the Yemeni action in the Red Sea legal and the British and American uh, punitive expedition against Yemen, again, entirely illegal. Have I got that right? Yes, I think so. I think that's a fair characterization. And then that leaves us in this absurd reality where the fact that these Western governments have now relisted the Houthis as a terrorist organization puts us in this you know, alternate reality where people who are presumably doing what is necessary to comply with international obligations to prevent genocide have been characterized uh, as terrorists. And other people who may speak out to support such action um, are, may then even find themselves prosecuted or arrested or interrogated on account of supporting terrorism. And, and so this is the absurd reality that we live in today. It is Alice in Wonderland. It's through the looking glass and, uh, and down the rabbit hole. Uh, Lara, as always, I'm very grateful to you, especially given the technical problems uh, that I've been having. Thanks for sticking with us and answering so eloquently the questions that everyone in the audience will be thinking and asking. Lara Elborno, thank you. Coming up after this break... It is the coolest of cats, our favorite American correspondent, Garland Nixon. Stay tuned. It's the mother of all talk shows. You are listening to the mother of all talk shows podcast with George Galloway. Now, Garland Nixon is always my go-to guy 
for up-to-date news and views on the United States political scene. And heaven knows there's plenty to ask him about this evening. And I'm glad to say that the radio show host and political analyst joins us again now. Garland, thanks for coming back on the mother of all talk shows. Let me ask you what I just asked Lara Elborno. Did Joe Biden uh, just prove incapable of reading the map when he said, and it's of course repeated ad nauseum by all these stenographers of the mass media, when he said that uh, these American troops had been attacked in Jordan, or was he, as I suspected, Lara thought not, uh, deliberately dissembling in order to provide cover for some violent spasm in retaliation? What's your view? You know, uh, uh, believe it or not, I think that this is somehow connect in some way connected to the ICJ ruling. I believe that Biden and his team sat down and decided what their um, what their position was going to be, what their statement and argument was going to be. I think they recognize that their bases are illegal in Syria, that that could be a potential problem for them in the future. It could be a potential problem for them um, arguing to the American people that the people that their troops were, you know, in a just doing a just job, doing something legal. Um, I think they recognize that any action they take, there's a it's really a huge potential problem for them because the troops are illegally occupying a country. And in the same way, interestingly enough, that Israel is illegally occupying Gaza, the Golan Heights, et cetera. And that's complicating things for Israel as to make the argument for their response. It certainly complicates things for the United States empire to argue that they have a just response for an illegal occupation of Syria. Yeah, that certainly was my initial thought. I suppose we'll see. Uh, it must have come as a shock uh, that the natives uh, can sometimes fight back. The United States uh, government is used to dishing out violence. Now they've been on the receiving end of it, and quite substantially, almost 40 people killed or wounded. Uh, their parents, their spouses, their children... Uh, will have long to lament the utterly pointless, or is it pointless, presence in Syria of these American forces. Well, the problem they have now is, uh, and, and I think this is another reason that they wanted to try to say it was in Jordan or anywhere but Syria, because they cannot afford for an epistemological, you know, an empirical discussion about the location of our troops. Our troops are in Syria illegally. The rules-based international order says the United States can do anything they want, anywhere they want, anytime they want. They want. And the U.S. can never afford to have the discussion with the American people about what they're doing, because oftentimes it's in violation of international law. So this is going to be a real problem for the Biden administration, just having the discussion, an honest discussion about why the troops are there and should they be there. And now they have to, you know, they're having this internal discussion that three troops were killed. Now are they going to take an action that causes 3,000 troops to be killed? Are they going to take an action that causes, uh, you know, dramatic problems as a result of uh, doubling down on a really bad policy? Well, uh, uh, Linda Graham was uh, very clear and John Cornyn that uh, you got to hit Tehran. Uh, that would, of course, trigger the wider regional war that Biden says he's been trying to avoid. Uh, is he still trying to avoid it? Was he ever 
trying to avoid it? Well, I think there's a, there are battles internally um, amongst the neocons as to, you know, there are people like the John Bolton wing that wants to attack, attack everything all the time um, that uh, aren't uh, like a, a John Cornyn and a, and a Lindsey Graham know good and darn well that if Joe Biden makes that decision and it goes really, really bad, that they can simply say, well, we didn't make the decision. We may have suggested it. So Joe Biden knows that he's he's kind of, you know, hanging out on a limb. If he makes a decision that turns into World War Three or God only knows what, the same people that were pushing him to do that are going to, you know, immediately jump off the uh, off the off the bandwagon and turn on him. The other thing that I think is significant is, you know, the um, the, the 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 neocons had argued that they could keep the Straits of Hormuz open if we ever, you know, we so of course we can attack Iran because we can keep the Straits of Hormuz open. Well, now that it's clear that they can't keep the Red Sea open. It's obvious they couldn't keep the Straits of Hormuz open. There go, therein goes the speculators on the energy market, the derivatives market. So if he takes this action, it could be an economic um, you know, suicide pill for the United States and a, and a significant portion of the West, if not the world. Now, I saw some staggering polling statistics today, Garland. Uh, 80% of Democrats... Uh, support an immediate uh, ceasefire in Gaza. Fifty uh, percent uh, of Democrats think that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza, and twenty percent weren't sure. Uh, the half, at least half, of all Americans uh, demand uh, a ceasefire, and a disproportionate number of them. Uh, well, the people that voted for Joe Biden last time, the, the Democrats are in a real pickle now, aren't they? Yeah. You know, the Democrats right now, the wheels are coming off the cart as far as the Democratic Party, because, um, you know, the the Democrats claim to be the good guys, you know, the um, the imperialist, uh, uh, you know, intervention to to save people and to save lives, et cetera. And now it's fairly obvious that the action they're taking, number one, they're not the good guys. Number two, the people in their party are um, are opposed to it. So we're seeing a dynamic where Joe Biden came in and he made a number of promises to, you know, regarding health care and student loans, et cetera, um, to his constituents, kept none of them, didn't even make an attempt to keep any of them. Now we're in a situation where on foreign, that's domestic policy, the, the ruling elite, particularly in the Democratic Party, are completely disassociated from their base. Now we're looking at foreign policy, where the same base says, no, we're not down with this. There's a moral contingent here and we're not we, we don't we don't uh, support this. And we're seeing that the ruling elite, particularly in the Democratic Party, are 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 completely separated uh, from their constituents when it comes to foreign policy. So at this point, I'll be honest, you know, I've never heard the yeah, and most people who know understand United States politics know that black America has always voted in a block for the Democrats. Right. They've always and it's been basically a lot of it's been fear based. A lot of it's been OK. The Democrats are the, you know, they're the, the union and the Republicans are the Confederates, metaphorically speaking. I have never in my life heard the kind of statements that I'm hearing in the black community about the Democrats, about the Biden administration, about supporting them, et cetera. The Democratic Party right now is in absolute and total collapse. 
The only thing they have left now is the Republicans are the bad guys and we have to stop Trump or something. And their constituency is starting to accept the reality that this party has spun completely out of control and it's suffering from a severe crisis of legitimacy. The, the Basically, the constituents do not believe that the people running this party are legitimate moral rulers of the party. And uh, I don't know how they get out of this one. But according to Nancy Pelosi, it's all Vladimir Putin's work. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense to me because, I mean, it's a narrative-based party at this point, absurd narratives. So she might as well have said that as anything else. They, they, uh, what it tells me is this. They have run out of answers. At that point, when somebody comes to you and gives you a legitimate question about political policy and you are a member of Congress, you're a member, you're a representative of the ruling elite. And the best you can say is Vladimir Putin, something, something about the protesters. You've run out of answers and you're in deep and serious trouble. Uh, now, they clearly had coordinated Garland. Uh, the uh, it's a conspiracy, really. They clearly had a plan. They told us they had a plan uh, if the uh, ICJ verdict went the other way. And now we know what the plan is. Uh, it's the UNRWA hoax, which actually deeply implicates, even more deeply than before, the US, the UK, all the other five eyes in genocide by, by cutting off food Yourself cutting it off, not Israel, you cutting it off by refusing to fund it. You are placing 2.3 million people who are already on the cusp of famine into the pit of famine. Nothing could be a more genocidal act. And they clearly had planned it because within 24 hours, based on mere allegations about just 12 people out of 13,000 employees in the Anawa, they all, one after the other, cut the funding. No words for that, really. Garland, help me. Well, what we have is a statement from them in reality. When The, the fact that they did that on the date that the um, that the, the the ruling was coming out of the the, um, the ICJ means so they knew what the ruling was going to be. Most anyone who any thinking person could figure that out, and they wanted to make a statement because what we're seeing here is what the rules based international order. The argument that four percent of the world in the United States can rule the other ninety six percent. The argument that the United States is the is the judge, jury, advocate executioner, et cetera, for the entire world and does not have to adhere to any international policies. That's the question at hand here. South Africa is arguing we can go to a criminal court of justice. We can make an, uh, uh, an allegation, an assertion, a complaint of a violation of international law and the U.S. and its proxy ally, whatever you want to say, extension in Israel have to appear, have to have to adhere to this international law. What are you going to do? And the United States answer is no. We're going with the rules based international order, which says we can do whatever we want. And it's just a way of them poking an eye into the system of international law. I mean, poking a finger into the eye of the system of international law, saying we will make a statement on the day that the ruling comes out. And that statement says, no, we're not adhering to international law. I would argue this. I would expect that maybe a Syria or Libya and the South American countries, countries that have suffered from 
um, the machinations of U.S. imperialism now will be lining up to write their complaints and present them at the um, at the at the ICJ that this is not the United States has not heard the last of this battle between the international rules based international order and the um, international system of international criminal justice that the rest of the world recognizes. Uh, does Donald Trump just have to sit there in Mar-a-Lago and the presidency fall into his lap? It's hard to see any other outcome at this moment. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, Donald Trump, you know, he's run off at the mouth and saying some foolish things. Now, a couple of things about Donald Trump. He recently there's there are strong rumors. I don't know how how accurate they are, but there are strong rumors going floating around that he is um, seeking to talk to RFK Jr. about being his VP. Um, Donald Trump recently made a, a preposterous statement that um, he would put 60 percent tariffs on anything coming from China, which would, of course, the tariffs are not against China. It's basically a tax against the American people. So I don't think the American people would be thrilled about seeing all of the stuff that they're buying, everything on Amazon, everything in Walmart, immediately a 66, 60% increase. Yeah, that, I don't think that would go over big. But the bottom line is this, Donald Trump would be better off to be quiet right now, to pull uh, the trick that Joe Biden pulled in, um, in 2020 and just claims that he has COVID and go hide in the basement because they are putting this thing in his lap. Yeah, it looks that way uh, to me. That's fascinating, the RFK uh, thing. Um, of course, it would be uh, a bit of a two-headed monster uh, on some issues. Uh, it would be quite uh, a tug of war on other issues between president and VP. And one of the two uh, has rather more uh, political timbre uh, than, than the other. Uh, I would have guessed there would be too much trouble in the House uh, if he took on RFK. He's more likely to go for someone who wouldn't argue his corner all that strongly? Well, you know, John, uh, uh, here's the thing. Donald Trump is so unpredictable. You know, I kind of thought Vivek Ramaswamy was going to be an, op uh, an option. But Donald Trump is so re uh, predictable. Who knows? The worst thing Donald Trump could do would be pick, you know, one of these people that's inured to the system. Because right now the system is creating an environment where Donald Trump looks like an outsider. And his best bet is to continue to... Um, uh, you know, to play the outsider game and they're just going to hand it to him. Um, I do think that um, the Biden administration right now is so tangled up internally and externally. I mean, we've got this thing going on in Texas, where literally the United States is on the verge of some kind of a war between the states and the federal government. And it's a they've got a problem that they can't resolve. We've averaged about two million un uh, uh, undocumented immigrants coming in per year over the last three years. But the reality is even the, the the Trump people, the conservatives, the people who are saying that it should be fixed, they have a valid complaint. However, they will not address the problem. And that is that the United States destabilized the entire region in South and Central America. And this is the chickens of U.S. imperialism coming home to roost. So they're saying we want to deal with all the undocumented immigrants, but they still will not admit that the destabilization of entire regions has created this uh, dynamic in the same way that, um, you know, getting rid of Libya brought in all of the African immigrants, on and on and on, that we've got uh, a, a U.S. empire all around the world that, that won't admit that uh, imperialist, aggressive 
uh, violent uh, foreign policy is causing people to come to their country because it seems safer than um, than the countries that have been that have been bombed and and, uh, and overthrown. Well, you've nicked what was my my last question, uh, which is uh, if uh, Russia now begins supplying weapons to Texas, it would not actually be a party to the conflict, would it? Uh, based on the uh, Ukrainian uh, model. You know, according to, uh, well, here's the thing. Again, we get back to the ICJ ruling, because what you bring up again is this. According to the rules-based international order, right, the United States can do anything they want, and no one else. The United States can provide weapons. We can do anything on Russia's border in Russia, literally in a province of Taiwan. The United States has sent a delegation to, to uh, excuse me, a province of China to Taiwan. So according to the rules-based international order, we can do whatever we want. And no one can uh, no one else can can imitate it. So, yes, what you bring up is the contradiction of U.S. the, the U.S. empire. And right now, people are going to start asking those questions. And I like I said, I suspect this Syria attack is a big problem because that's a discussion that the U.S. can't afford to have. What happens it, right now if, if the Assad government goes before the ICJ and says, we want to litigate the claims against us that we use uh, chemical weapons against our people, and then we were attacked by the United States and NATO afterwards, we want to adjudicate that. And they present empirical data and evidence. Again, the U.S. empire is sitting there with so many skeletons in their closet that they can't acknowledge the legitimacy of the international criminal, uh, uh, the, the ICJ. Incredible. Garland Nixon, as always, thanks for your wisdom and your wry humor. Very good to see you uh, again. Let me take a quick break and then I'll be back. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. No, I'm in the Hague now. My next guest was here and peerlessly reporting on the case of South Africa against Israel at the ICJ. I wonder what he thinks about what happened next. He is, of course, the Honourable Craig Murray, former British ambassador, and he joins me now on the line. Craig, thank you uh, for joining us. I'm in The Hague now. It's after the Lord Mayor's show. Uh, the judgment... Uh, hung heavily on Friday, but it's been so overtaken by events, hasn't it? Um, it has, but I, I think some of the reason for that is in the judgment. I mean, I think the judgment was a long way better than I expected it to be. And I think the lashing out at UNRWA and at the UN in particular um, is because of the judgment, and especially uh, two things. I, I'm, I mean, firstly, they wanted to distract attention from the judgment because Israel lost on every single count. Um, and secondly, 
they wanted to discredit UNRWA because um, one key thing about the judgment is that the the court made findings of fact. It found that there, there are facts which plausibly uh, amount to genocide, and and not just it didn't just find that South Africa said these things. It found its own fact and said these facts. Um, amount plausibly to genocide. And those facts included statements by UNRWA. Statements by UNRWA were quite important facts uh, behind the opinion of the ICJ. Uh, so I think it's no co coincidence whatsoever uh, that you immediately uh, get these attacks on the integrity of, of UNRWA and this attempt to uh, defund um, UNRWA, which of course also helps contribute to the genocide. It speeds up the genocide by contributing to uh, starvation and despoilation. Yes, uh, I mean, uh, I didn't see that one coming, I must say. Uh, your, your friend is accused uh, of genocide. A court by an overwhelming majority uh, finds that you may very well be guilty of that genocide, makes demands of you to correct your behavior, gives you a month to report, and effectively sends you to trial for genocide, and instead of distancing yourself for your own protection from your friend, you double down, because that's what this is. You double down on your support for the accused, and you yourself embark on a course of action which may very well leave you in the dock for genocide. That's friendship for you, isn't it, Craig? It's, it's extraordinary. I mean, the hold that the, the Zionist lobby has over the political class in the in the UK, as, as you know better than anyone, uh, George, is just incredibly strong. And I, I, mean, I certainly didn't see that coming. I, I'm, and the, the coordinated and fast response, because governments, uh, as again you know, governments do not make uh, policy decisions in 20 minutes. You know, you know, they but all these governments to come in one after the other within a matter of a couple of hours, withdrawing finance from under that must have been coordinated in advance and 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 uh, have been up the sleeve, if you like, as a as a reaction to the ICJ judgment. Um, so, you know, we're at levels of evil here, which are astonishing. You've got. The ICJ detailing the starvation and deprivation and deaths and the terrible conditions in which people are living. You've got the UN spelling it out in great detail, all, all reported in the ICJ opinion. Um, and then you've got action taken deliberately to increase starvation. I, and it's so evil, I, I, I'm struggling to come to terms with it. Yes, me too. Uh, I know Anarwa uh, very well. Uh, over decades, uh, I have known them well in the in the refugee camps in Lebanon, first of all, uh, which I first uh, attended in, in 1977, and of course in Gaza, where they are, they are literally the difference between life and death for millions of people. They provide the food, they provide the medicine, they provide the schools, they provide the funding for the basic levels of health that uh, exist in normal times, normal uh, times. And now our government, the governments of our uh, closest uh, allies, have pooled the funding. It, I'm almost lost for words about it. 
Yeah. No, it, 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 it's simply astonishing. It's it's evil. Um, it's the only <laughs> only word that is for it. It is it, it it's an act of evil, and it's an act of petulance in in part as well because uh, they are really angry about the international system and the international court of justice standing up to them in a way which they didn't expect. I think, uh, and they had contingency plans in place. And I assume they had a few days warning of the way the court was going. But they, I think they were very confident that they'd be able to lean on the uh, on the ICJ and get their way. And the ICJ has stood up to them. And I think it's so unusual for them to have the Zionist narrative contradicted uh, bluntly in this way, uh, that they're reacting in anger and, and, and emotion. And in perfect synchronicity. I mean, one used to expect the United States to be fully behind Israel, the United Kingdom to be not quite as fully, but still pretty much, and countries like New Zealand and so on, likely to take uh, uh, a much less supportive uh, stand. Countries like France, sometimes not supportive at all. But they moved like uh, it was like an episode of of uh, come dancing. It's true. It's it's astonishing, and on such a flimsy pretext. I mean, you've got this organisation which employs thirty thousand people. It employs fourteen thousand people in Gaza, uh, of whom twelve are alleged to have taken part in events on the seventh of October. And that's alleged by the Israelis. Nothing has been proven yet. Those poor people, the ones, one of them has already been killed by the Israelis. The others have been sacked before the investigation, which says something about, you know, the kind of justice at play here. Um, and you know, this is a minuscule proportion of the staff of UNRWA, even were it true. I, I mean, if, you know, would you close down the US post office because it had. 20 criminals in it. It's just, as a pretext, it just doesn't add up. It's quite astonishing. And for so many countries to all act in concert on such a ludicrously flimsy pretext is um, it's something which I think future historians will puzzle over. And yet the BBC, and I saw you commenting on this, went for it hook, line and sinker. It became, uh, having ignored the result here in The Hague, they went nap in horse-raising terms, in Bookie's terms. They went nap on uh, this, I think, hoax over UNRWA. Our journalists, have, our broadcasters, have completely lost any sense of integrity, it seems to me. Yeah, I, d- I don't say how any honourable person can continue working for the BBC. And I would say to our to our listeners that I don't see how any honourable person can continue paying their television licence, and uh, that, that is something people can do. But they led, it wasn't just the lead item on the news, it was eight minutes long in a news bulletin. And as you know, it's very, very unusual to have a single item that's eight minutes long on the main news bulletin. 
normally items are two or three minutes long at most, and, and often they're, they're a matter of seconds. Eight minutes of propaganda. And, of course, it gave them the excuse to retail all the rather dubious atrocities stories of 7 October all over again. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it was massively more. It was three or four times the time they gave to the ICJ opinion that Israel is uh, possibly guilty of genocide, plausibly guilty of genocide, and that 30,000, 25 to 30,000 people are dead. Uh, and instead, they had eight minutes on this sacking of, of 12 people. Uh, it's it's just astonishing. It, it, it absolutely beggars belief. Now, help me on this, uh, uh, Excellency. The the leader of the opposition is a king's counsel. Sir Keir Starmer, KC, King's Counsel. He's a human rights lawyer. He's never done opining on all manner of apparently or allegedly illegal acts by some countries, principally Russia. Uh, and he's ready to do that live on television without being in possession of all the facts or necessarily even any of the facts. But he has been completely silent on a finding of the ICJ against a country that he has pledged his support without qualification. He's living up to that promise, isn't he? It's it's sickening. And the, the degree of humiliation he's prepared to go through in order to maintain a sort of record of 100% loyalty to Israel. Um, I'm, I'm sure you saw the interview where he was asked about the civilian being shot dead while carrying a, a white flag. And he was asked point blank, is it a war crime to shoot dead an unarmed civilian holding a white flag? And he said, oh, well, I I can't tell. You know, you shouldn't ask politicians to give off the cuff answers. I need to see more evidence, blah, blah. Um, uh, which is ludicrous. I, I mean, it's frankly shameful. And at no stage has he been prepared to call out any of the obvious uh, Israeli uh, war crimes, including when they shot dead three of their own hostages who were unarmed and carrying a white flag. Um, it, it, it's really quite astonishing. And the, we have the Labour Party today um with Lisa Nandy saying she supports the cutting of uh, finance to UNRWA. Um, and then I presume after a you know, substantial reaction from, from their membership, um, their position now is that they support ending the finance to UNRWA, but that the flow of aid ought not to be interrupted, which makes no sense whatsoever. But they, they just tie themselves in the most ludicrous of knots in order and humiliate themselves in order to avoid any criticism of Israel whatsoever. And finally on that, as, as, as we know, 40% of shadow cabinet members are financed by the, by the Zionist lobby. 40%. Uh, and they've just sacked another MP uh, this evening, Kate Osamore, uh, for the crime, uh, for the thought crime, for the uh, crime of words, they've sacked her uh, for daring to raise in the same uh, weekend uh, the Holocaust and the 
other holocaust that is underway in Gaza. I mean, what but a holocaust is 65,000 wounded, 30,000 dead, thousands still under the rubble, famine, pestilence, and disease, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. What but a holocaust is that? And yet for daring, although not as eloquently, uh, to even hint that that might be so, this long-standing Labour MP, a black woman MP, the kind of MP they, they, they changed all their rules to ensure there were more of, uh, she's now joined uh, the first ever black woman MP, Diane Abbott, on the bench of ex-Labour MPs. It seems that there's no stopping the Labour Friends of Israel. Well, I mean, in the Keir Hart <laughs> Starmer's Labour Party, you can get expelled for agreeing with the International Court of Justice. Uh, uh, that's what it boils down to. And that's simply an astonishing state of affairs. I mean, this is not the Labour Party in any meaningful sense whatsoever. It's no longer the Labour Party. It, it is now a second Conservative Party, which is every bit as, as right-wing as the first Conservative Party. Well, Honourable Craig Murray, we can always rely on you, uh, not just for honesty, but for wisdom. Thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Extremely dangerous situation that we find ourselves in this evening, and my uh, technical difficulties may or may not have been related to that. One couldn't rule it out, could one? One couldn't rule out someone kicking the door down of this studio right now and cutting me off the air. One couldn't rule out, one would be unwise to rule out anything at all. After all, when uh, a panel of the world's top judges in the world's Supreme Court can pronounce so comprehensively as they did here in The Hague on Friday, only for that paper to be incinerated uh, within hours, turned into ash in the mouths of the judges, turned into ash immediately with the deployment of a hoax pretext so flimsy as to be utterly laughable if it were not so utterly horrifying and indeed terrifying. And the new situation that now exists in the Levant and may exist by the morning in West Asia is uh, something for us all to fear. Not least because if the balloon goes up, we'll all be dead. I mean, all of us. It's very important that you grasp this. This is not the First World War. And this will not be just soldiers fighting in trenches. And this will be a thermonuclear war in which all of us would die. Why? So that Ben Gavir can dance in a settlement in Gaza? Really? You want to die for that? Do you? You want your children and their children to die for that? Do you want your grandchildren 
as yet unborn never do exist because of that? Well, that's the situation we are now in. It's a situation more dangerous than we have ever faced before, and I lived through uh, the Cuban missile crisis, lying in my bed hearing aircraft from the nearby Royal Air Force Station at Lucas in Fife flying overhead and thinking that the nuclear bomb was about to be dropped. That's how dangerous the situation we are now in. So hold tight to those you love. Hold tight to righteousness because if we all die, we'll all face the judgment day and we'll all have to answer for what we did and what we didn't do. Whilst I still can, I'm headed to Rochdale where I have announced that I will be a candidate in the forthcoming parliamentary by-election. There's no date yet for the by-election. They may have wanted to call it early, but now that I'm in the race, they may want to delay it. Whether they call it early or whether they delay it, I will fight for every vote and I expect to do extremely well. I got 21.8% of the vote in the last by-election I contested in Batley and Spen. I expect to do better than that in the Rochdale by-election whenever it is fought. If I had got 1% more in Batley and Spen, Sir Keir Starmer would now be the ex-leader of the Labour Party. There can be no future for Britain as a one-party state, as a uni-party state, as a Tory-Labour duopoly, when both of them stand for entirely the same things on virtually every issue of importance, including the supremely important issues of war and peace. So we have to bust that duopoly. And so I'll be asking the people in Rochdale to lend me their vote just once for what? The remaining six months of this parliament. That's all. Don't have to re-elect me. You don't have to support me again. You don't have to pledge your loyalty to me. Just send a message to the British political class that you will not put up with this any longer. Just send a message to the crooks in the British mass media that you will not accept being lied into the slaughterhouse. And perhaps above all, send a message to the people soaking wet, freezing cold, hungry, living out in the open in Gaza tonight, wondering if this is the night that Benjamin Netanyahu and his criminal gang 
bring their lives and the lives of their children to a blistering end with red-hot, razor-sharp steel, sheets of flying glass, molten lead, or whether they die instead tomorrow of hunger, of famine, of disease. Because I tell you how they would vote, I can assure you of that. Without any possibility of contradiction, the people of Gaza would be voting for me in the Rochdale by-election. But they cannot vote. They cannot vote even where they are, never mind, in a by-election in Britain. So the people in Rochdale have a chance to vote for them, to vote for justice, to vote for peace, to vote for a real democracy. And I hope that they will take it. It's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you, despite the technical difficulties, which may or may not have something to do, that I'm only a few hundred yards away from the International Criminal Court in The Hague. Thanks for watching.